Okay, hello again. I'm still at the Urban History Planning History Conference in Launceston, and I'm now joined by Professor Nick. Are you Nicholas or Nick? Nick. Nick Phelps from the University of Melbourne. Hi, Nick. Hi there. I'm Nicholas on my publications, and Nick to you, or if you're having a beer with me or whatever. And is it? It's the same for me because, like, my publication is Elizabeth. In fact, I use my middle name as well Uh, to to avoid the celebrity. Okay, well, we're similar then. We're on the same page. And is it Launceston or Launceston? I'm told it's. Well, now that you've said it, you've thrown me off. It's Launceston or Lonnie. Lonnie, okay. It's a bit like, well, I was going to say one of the places you presented at, at about yeah. today. Not quite as tricky, but you presented on, um, well, the city of Casey essentially, which yeah. is in out of southeastern Melbourne, yeah. and some of its historical centres and imagined centres. One of which is spelt Berwick, but it is Berwick. Berwick. That's, that's an English one, isn't it? It is, yeah. Right. Some of those. I feel like that's just a way of giving away whether you're local or whether you've got good taste is whether you pronounce have an extra um, consonant in there yeah <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how did you get interested how did you get drawn into this topic because you're only been in Australia for what a year yeah. or so well it goes back a long way so uh, that's the tram in the background for uh, for, for listeners um, I'll pause while it goes past So I began life as an economic geographer um, back in Cardiff University, more or less, as a first lecturing position. And uh, while I was there quite early on, I also became a subcontractor to my PhD supervisor, who had turned into a consultant and was working for Croydon Council in South London. So Croydon um, is the butt of many jokes um, in the UK as a kind of very boring, over-urbanised uh, but suburban place uh, in a way concrete suburban jungle really um, and while I was working there I got quite interested in the whole idea uh, that uh, Croydon saw itself as distinct from the rest of London and also had a very strong sense of trying to fashion itself as a city uh, and one of the, one of the things that it was trying to do there was it had joined or formed a network of so-called edge cities um, independently of the reference to Joel Garrow um, What's that reference? So Joel Garrow was a Washington Post journalist who came up with the, the, the term edge city to describe these sort of satellite employment districts which had grown up at the edge of American cities uh, from about the 1960s. Croydon would be an, a UK equivalent of that, but rail-based rather than car-based. Um, but they were interested in the city bit, not the edge bit in Croydon. Anyway, long story short, I, I stayed in touch with them, started to do research on suburbs, Became very, became very interested in um, how interesting suburban places were, obviously widely critiqued and, and lambasted as being boring and nothing interesting happening there. Of course, they're usually quite large territories, so there's got a lot of complexity going on within them, a lot of diversity um, and a lot of interesting things. They're the centres for new developments, new ideas oftentimes. So um, a lot of urban geography and planning centres on the downtown parts of, of cities and I didn't really think there was much being written other than by um, a sort of small band of, of uh, urban geography historians or sometimes urban planning historians on suburbs. So since that time I'd, I'd sort of gradually put a bit of my uh, effort into either doing unpaid unfunded research or getting a few research grants, particularly in the UK, had uh, researched a bunch of places across Europe to begin with and then moved into the US to to look at 
um, essentially building out of this term edge city again, looking for these counterparts in Europe and then North America. Uh, having moved to Australia um, and not knowing anything about Australian conditions or anything about Melbourne, uh, the logical thing to do was to carry on with looking at suburbs. Um, and David Nichols, uh, colleague at Melbourne Uni, was very instrumental there. He said, oh, we should go out to Casey. So he drove me out there. And, of course, I was hooked. Um, even what hooked you on Casey? Um, j- just the fact that, you know, things were happening. It's live. Um and things are changing very rapidly you can see that visually you know um, new housing developments next to a field that's still being farmed Um, the sheer scale of the place you know just driving around and realizing you can't quickly get a mental map of it um, uh, is interesting in itself you know it's a very huge territory and and yet it's got to be fashioned into some kind of city and it has a municipality and they are trying to do this job of creating a place out of a potentially several places or or even a somewhere which doesn't have much sense of place so I think that's all of those intrigue I think and part of a sense of place do you think that intrinsically comes with the idea that you need a center or centers um, I think it probably does I mean this is a, it's a very huge uh, local government area I can't know what the, the land area is and it stretches through different landscapes um, you know from the foothills down to the, the coast so it's it's a, it's a hell of a task to sort of fashion a single coherent identity around a municipality like that. Um, there are municipalities that have labelled themselves as cities with multiple centres. It's not a very common thing to do. So there are one or two who've done that uh, or a network of centres. Uh, I think Casey is probably one of those that would, would have to think in those terms. It's so big. I think, uh, I think it is important for people in a residential area if it's to be anything more than a residential area to have some sort of hub or, or central place um, now it's quite difficult to fashion at the kind of smaller scale neighborhood scale um, people do need some kind of place that the probably the, the word is buzz where they want you know uh, you you want to be quiet and in your home and perhaps you know that's the typical idea of suburban uh, life but there's probably still a part of most people even living a suburban life want to go fairly within some kind of reasonable distance to a place where they can experience something different which is perhaps the outward going you know so you most people have got two aspects of them I, I believe you know the kind of uh, want to be quiet away from things you know seclusion but also and other times you know to engage with people and I think that's what probably cities can provide in, at their best you know and I reading um, uh, I've forgotten his name now um, Ideas for Australian Cities, Hugh Stretton, I think he makes that point quite clearly that both aspects are important in cities, you know, the, the seclusion bit for genuine inventiveness and creativity often requires quiet time, uh, focused, and then other aspects of innovation or incremental change is, is driven by engagement with other people, so I think there's something in that, and of course, someone like Casey, is, it's unclear whether it has at the moment or will have that second option of, uh, of something other than seclusion, I think. So they've had plans. I mean, one of the things you were talking about today uh, was this imagined centre for Berwick mm. of the 1970s. Mm. Yeah. Was that, is that, I mean, that was more David's research, but it was, could you give some an outline of what Berwick was to be? Yes. Um, I mean, that 
has been an interesting thing for me. The project started off by looking at the, what's the contemporary situation, but you can't understand where we've got to unless you, you dig back in the past a little bit. That happens to be a really interesting um, sort of counterpoint. So in the 1970s, um, the then Shire of Berwick, I think, as it transformed itself into the city of Berwick, um, had ambitious um, plans. It recruited well in terms of you know the best human resources it could, planners, engineers, and at that moment in the 70s, I think you, uh, planning was still associated with doing something future-oriented, very strongly future-oriented, um, almost futuristic, or uh, you know, probably people today would laugh at it. Um, uh, I feel funny about that, because I laughed at them, yeah. but then it's like, what have we become? Exactly. So the, the alternative is what has become in a place like Casey, where um, I think it's quite accepted now that you know planning doesn't seek to to manipulate the future in quite that way um, and you 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 probably rightly lose some bad things in losing that overly um, what's the word you know uh, too big a step in one go mm. but you lose some of the perhaps the, the wider ambition and, and possibility in planning so for every futuristic monorail scheme that is not going to be built out in the outer suburbs at least not yet mm. if you lose that okay that's that's probably something you're prepared to lose because it, maybe it's too unwieldy or unworkable but you also lose the whole idea of, of actually properly for example recycling uplifts in land values mm. to provide parks or schools or, or social facilities or affordable housing um, yeah. which was also part of that futuristic idea it would yeah, be a it development yeah um, development yeah. corporation would mm-hmm. have been a, a development arm of the local government that would have built this new town which is a fairly traditional idea and new towns do happen to be um, I suppose my point here would be thinking about how Casey is being built out incrementally however well intentioned in terms of PSPs um, the uh, precinct structure plans the the record of, of new towns when they've been properly done under a development corporation um, they're a very orderly way of, of catering to large-scale residential and employment land uses um, over the business cycle and in an integrated way um, and they've in Britain they've often had a bad rap mm. um, you know you think you have to dis- disassociate the architectural and some of the planning sensibilities of the say the 1950s 60s 70s from the actual mechanism of delivering some of this which you know um, you know it, you look at the kind of facilities and, and the integrated nature of some of these places with employment and residential and, and they they work pretty well yeah, and I'm thinking of uh, interviews I've done in City of Casey on other topics mm. about the um, issues with transport provision there, issues with mm. inability to provide the many new s- suburbs and estates that are built out there with, with the basics of mm. community infrastructure oh. ahead of time. And I think a lot of these things that were either imagined or actually implemented mm. in the, the Newtown model, again, it's hard to dissociate, but we need to, the architectural dagginess of mm. it from... The fact that they had some pretty usable mechanisms, particularly when it yeah. came to land value, financing yeah. and timing. Yeah, and it's unfortunately it's a bit of a cultural shift that has occurred. I mean, I think it's culturally it's a little bit difficult to turn the clock back because the culture at the time, in, from you know the 50s, 60s, 70s, when the last British new town was being you know uh, created, uh, Milton Keynes, was there was well, there was an acceptance that planning was a generally good thing and that therefore um, you know. A, an authority being able to buy land at or near the current use value 
um, from a landholder in order for the greater good, that has kind of disappeared. And unless we get back to conversations about what is the proper amount that, that a private land owner can expect um, from public decisions, whether it's in infrastructure or, or a, a, a planning decision, um, I think we're going to struggle to, to build you know, good communities going forward. Uh, s some of that has been leveraged through developer contributions, mm -hmm. but uh, and, you know, that I think there's some evidence that the communities being built are a little bit better in yes, terms of the yeah, upfront facilities. Certain, yeah. certain things that are part of the DCP schemes and um, other um, infrastructure contribution schemes that are, are an improvement on some of the worst. And I'd say mm. some of the worst um, service suburbs are actually built in the 80s and 90s, yeah, yeah. so we have come some way, but but again, fashioning that centre and, and some of the other facilities, which, you know, cost money and, you know, broadly speaking, developers don't like to give up land or, um, you know, or perhaps haven't got the headroom to be able to do that. They may well have the headroom or a development corporation would have the headroom if they were able to buy land, you know, let's say 20% above current use value. Um, it's classic debates in planning. Uh, unearned increments, etc. You can't be the steward of the land one minute as a farmer and then be wanting full development value and a multi-millionaire mm -hmm. the next. You need to decide which one of those it is. We have that some of that history in Australia. All we were Donga had a development corporation through the mm -hmm. federal mm -hmm. uh, growth centres program, and they also were uh, bought bought land and developed it and had that more more of that control. But there seemed to be a backlash. Um, well, well beyond the scope of just specifically the question of land acquisition and assembly, that um, there was so much negative, sorry, no, negative um, view of the fact that the land corporations in um, Bathurst Orange and Oldwoodonga, you know, that they did buy a lot of land and then they they were overexposed. That the conservative financial approach to planning is is so far in the other direction. It's like you can't even possibly contemplate that we would even buy any land now. So. Well, what's the old adage, you know, uh, Mark Twain, buy land, they're not making any of it anymore. You know, um, Singapore land area has grown 15% or something, you know, through reclamation. Uh, it's a long-term thing, as any land speculator will, will, will tell you as well, and, or developers who do land bank. Um, I mean, they, they know the value of land, and, you know, they have the resources to, to sit on land for a while. Um, local governments are taking the decision to, to sell off land, you know, in, you know, financial circumstances. And, um, you know, uh, Including I think... Including uh, rail reservations, usually, as well. Uh, yes, well, you know, crazy um, stuff. So, I mean, it, it is difficult to put the genie back in the bottle if you've had land holdings and you then set it off because it's incredibly expensive to, to repurchase. Mm. Um, my brother works... Um, in asset management and he tells me that uh, local authorities in Britain are often a don't know the property that they own b have often sold and rebought properties also, they don't know, they yeah and they and they have been involved with selling and repurchasing plots of land and, and mm. properties um, in ways that are not you know sensible you know I think I think timing is important as well so the new towns in Britain um, we're broadly in an era of population and economic growth and the most successful ones were in the orbit of London which broadly speaking has continued to grow in various ways or at least the greater London overspill has continued um, you know for, for a long a long period of time so 
you know, maybe unfortunately the timing of the, the Australian new towns were at a at a, a key point where things dip. If you haven't got deep pockets as a government, uh, determination to carry on through, I think they they probably could have got there because I'm sure mm. several of the new towns, including Milton Keynes, went through a dip. Um, mm -hmm. It's now the fastest growing city with a um, in the UK, I think, with a yeah, quite a, a positive sort of industrial structure. You know, um, in terms of yeah. non-manufacturing it's basically a service center mm -hmm. um, there are other reasons for that it's quite close to London well connected but you know um, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that some of those new towns would have a, a more positive industry structure than them actually existing cities and therefore be growing quite strongly yeah. um, you know usually they attract selective out migration as well which you know better educated people etc um, you know key industries which are you know tend to be newer mm -hmm. so they there is a logic in in all of that, I think, which would make those places uh, probably further down the line uh, do quite well. So, was that, I mean, the timing in the seventies was coincided yeah. in Australia with um, well tariff reduction, exposure to global yeah. uh, economic forces, which tended to just. I mean, at the same yeah. time that they're trying to relocate industry, a lot of industries were contracting. So Berwick City, soon after it had come up with those grand plans for a new metro city of roughly 100,000. Um, with, with a monorail? With a monorail, um, with a green gap between it and the existing sort of urban fabric, uh, which in itself is a bit controversial, mm. uh, like a mini green belt within um, the outer uh, suburban reaches. Um, I mean that that it's interesting how things stick, and I think David alluded to that. That you know um, we can joke about planning and whether it actually has an effect. But one of the indicators of that is that even if a plan is shelved or put in the bottom drawer, somehow something of it probably sticks. And I think the thing that David was mentioning was that that plan in the 70s had narrow Warren down as as a you know potential new centre, and of course that has kind of stuck. Uh, it stuck because the um, commissioners who appointed uh, key staff in KC also insisted more or less that the, the new local government offices of KC would be in Narrow Warren to begin with. I think that's just followed on now that the, the new sort of um, municipal centre is not that far away from Narrow Warren. So some things stick, even if the monorail is, you know, not going to happen. Um, uh, some things were actually done. So the monorail, um, although it didn't actually appear, I uh, think, you know, because there was actually development happening, I believe that some parts of KC do bear the marks of where a monorail would have run. Uh, so, you, you know, some things actually did, mm -hmm. um, you know, did happen on the ground, even if, and, and potentially, I suppose, the argument is they could still be, um, what do you call it, thoroughfares for any future transport system. Mm -hmm. And th that's quite an important thing because having rights of way uh, reservations, um, you know, you, these can be really difficult to retrofit um, public transit uh, options. So, who's to say that that won't come back in in some form or other? Uh, maybe not uh, an expensive I think monorail. Trams. That's my Tra well. Yeah. I'm not personally saying that. I think that's just the current monorail. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well. Can I, I think can, we'll, yeah. can yeah. I ask? In all the edge city yeah. conditions you've looked at, 
how prevalent is the uh, futuristic monorail motif? Um, well, I think we talked about that a little bit after the presentation, but I think it's really interesting that, you know, the early 70s or so when the Berwick Metro City was being discussed, I think you can see a lot of um, resonances across the globe, really. Um, I, I think, you know, th there is planning literature out there which talks about the way in which planners have communicated historically at an international scale through conferences and travels. Um, I think the 70s was an era, obviously you have the TV for example, so you have the beginnings of um, virtual travels of planning ideas because I, I'm pretty certain that there probably wasn't physical exchange of planners that much or, or conferences being organised about suburban monorails but I think the coverage in newspapers and, and TV uh, programmes etc was enough to probably perhaps the first instances of this sort of virtual traveling of planning ideas and you know um, a number of cities uh, and suburbs have probably had these sorts of ideas of, of monorails um, the interesting thing would be to find out whether any entities or organizations were pushing them whether it's like manufacturers mm. of you know these systems yeah. quite possible um, because some of those private entities have also got at various times interested in urban planning issues because of the market they represent so I think you can see you know in the future orientation of urban planning at that moment you know early 70s into the 70s possibly into the 80s depending on which country you're talking about that belief that planning should be about the future there was nothing wrong with thinking about the future in, in quite grand terms I think we've we're now in a situation where we've lost a lot of that future thinking um, probably because planners are, are quite reticent to, to do that um, because of the reception from the general public. Mm -hmm. uh, the general public is, um, it's interesting, I mean you know, people do make plans every day about what they're going to do but it's usually things to hand, immediate things that are most people are most concerned about and they're most concerned about their home to, to get people to think slightly bigger in collective terms whether it's even the neighbourhood certainly the city scale let alone the regional or the national scale so thinking about some of the talks we've or heard about national scale. well national settlement patterns I'd be very intrigued to know was it Julian whether Julian what kind of responses and what scale responses you'll get from the general public about the, in, any interest in a national settlement pattern it's incredibly difficult to get people to think beyond their home uh, scale you know literally there if, if something's getting built next door you'll have a lot of protests yeah. um but if if it's about what do you think about this regional plan probably a bit of a That's large a, amount of apathy i think i agree i don't i'm not sure it'd be interesting a plug i'll plug that survey when it comes out but um one point that does seem to resonate with people though julian's work has those maps mm. you know where will mm. people go and these yeah. i think perhaps deliberately um evoke some of these like war maps um mm. So if some famous maps in Australia's history include this one where it shows like the yellow, what they call oh, the yeah. yellow peril, oh, just yeah. coming down from the oh, north. And maybe uh, people can engage yeah. with fear more yeah. than uh, the future, I don't know. I think they do. I think, I mean, you, know, you said, you know, people react to negatively to um, things in my backyard. They're very diff it's very difficult for people to think positively about very far into the future and very wide in geographical mm. terms. And that's a problem for planning because somehow you've got to take people with you you've got to be able to get them interested in that or at least not have them against you so as a as somebody who thinks that you know some element of that is needed and, and i think it is needed that sort of 
bigger picture planning um, you know it's it's incredibly difficult to, to get people interested in a, in, a, in a positive way so that remains a real challenge for planning I think um, continuing your work on sub- suburbs edge cities in Australia and do you think they're different or what do you think what kind of angles are you pursuing um, I was I was quite shocked traveling out all the way out to KC 46 kilometers on the train or whatever and just the the sheer um, scale of all of this at, you know single story or, or two-story um, the only equivalent I can think of is in the US is Miami or, or greater mm. Metro Miami which is very similar uh, uh, hardly any cent- centers other than a, a CBD mm-hmm. at least Melbourne has a, a major CBD I mean um, Miami doesn't really have a, a major CBD um, so I think it's a bit of a concern. I'm, I'm surprised that people are not having an active debate about regional towns or new new cities, um, because in you know, to all intents and purposes, Melbourne could could continue to to perhaps sprawl or extend another 50 kilometres on on that plane out perhaps to across the Bass Strait one day. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, you know, to, to think about innovative ideas, I suppose, in, if we're talking about future planning orientation, I mean, Singapore. For all kinds of very specific reasons has been able to do that including thinking outside of the box so i think one of their schemes was to have a floating industrial park because mm-hmm. you know, the lack of you know lack of uh, available land and it, and it may take some of that thinking a little bit differently um to to solve problems in britain as well as as australia um in perhaps you know uh, more sustainable or or sustainable ways that are economically sustainable as well as environmentally because again we're back to the buzz thing how do you create meaningful centers i guess that the issue is well how can you do it in a relatively short time i mean Mm. probably market forces will dictate some of that but it could be a long time coming and in places like casey you know before you get tearing down of buildings and redevelopment it's 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 unclear um and you may want to factor some of that in right from the start so the new town record probably doesn't seem quite that bad you know um in in terms of how long we might wait for real centers to emerge in in the periphery how long did they take um well they were designated you know what milton Keynes was designated in the 60s i mean it's now the fastest growing city i think it went through a period where it was uh, joked about and it was almost uh well first of all i think it was almost dropped and but it was too far along i think to be done that's right i know one of the people here um lauren did her phd on Milton Keynes and really takes uh, offence at this yeah butt of jokes thing. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's. I it's mean, not I can. So yeah. Much now, I, don't I don't think so. And it, I mean, it's obviously it's not for everyone. It is quite car centred and was mm. designed that way. Um, but you know, I mean, it 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 provided for a fairly orderly and efficient and profitable way of developing a large scale community and 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 still has that framework. I think it's still overbounded to use a very technical term but it has space in which to expand so i think it's going to go from 250 to 400,000 population um but i think you know beyond the sort of d- an entirely new city idea which is probably is probably quite problematic in a lot of national contexts now for a lot of reasons there are other ideas which are around like you know new market towns so the southeast of england very difficult to insert a major new town there in terms of the settlement pattern it's essentially a few large a few medium-sized cities and and then a lot of market towns so do we have brand new market towns inserted into the urban system of 20,000 not 100,000 I personally think in the UK we should have been expanding the the quite small to medium-sized cities in the southeast of England because I think they could have been the Manchester's or the Liverpool's 
of the current industrial revolution, if you want to call it that. But they've been physically quite constrained, um, you know, as as centres. Um, so you've had a lot of suburban employment decentralisation. Um, you know, th and then the question in, I guess, Australia, um, something I'm toying with um, in, in sort of thinking about are there, are there, should planning policy get away from some of the orthodoxies that it's had? I mean, um, I probably won't be thanked for saying this, but, you know, green belts, um, green wedges, etc., can be important, but they've got to be carefully thought about uh, what, what the purpose of them is, if they're just... Um, holding spaces, holding spaces or if they are the, the areas on which you get re-elected which they are in the UK <laughs> um, they're not serving any purpose but we also probably ought to think a lot more about key incentivizing key projects or spaces that are at the boundaries of local government areas because typically these are very poorly planned because they're where you know uh, politicians dump uh, some of their unwanted land uses um, certainly happens in the UK perhaps less so here but I think there are some opportunities to to actually think um, of blurring some of these sharp boundaries town and country um, you know municipal boundaries um, and do things a little bit differently potentially because some of those blurred edges are happening anyway they're just not being planned very well so you know you can you can create ideal constructs including planning policies but um, they rarely hold in quite the way that we think they do and you end up with something which is probably not what anyone wanted um, despite what seem to be you know good ideas about green belts or, or green wedges so I think that it's very difficult to propose that in planning terms um, to almost it almost seems like you're uh, conceding to there being sprawl but it's not quite what mm -hmm. I'm saying I think it, you know because it, it could include you know more intense use of land you know but I think there are some pockets and some perhaps alternative ways of thinking about it I mean the whole idea of coalescing settlements I still think is an interesting one it's, it's very rarely thought of mm -hmm. the Albury Wodonga thing would have done that as well as in create a new town as mm -hmm. part of the same thing I think Morwell and Tralgon Tralgon are I mean that's an I interesting thing they are they have an active plan to to merge um, yeah. and have a you know, develop the space in between them and mm -hmm. <coughs> that fits the context so mm -hmm. The whole idea of having universals of green belts and green wedges probably needs to be looked at, particularly in low growth areas um, mm -hmm. or where there's a need to, to generate new opportunity. And you know, but equally, I know in the UK that there are areas which are still growing and are, are relatively prosperous, where even you know councillors and politicians and planners are interested in you know getting rid of green belt and merging otherwise separate cities. And we do have some anomalous situations of freeways running through green belts in if you know anything about um development you know anywhere there's a freeway and there's a junction there's incredibly developable land and you know it doesn't really make a lot of sense you know particularly when it's running between two established centers to have a a freeway mm. and green belts so the, the example i'm thinking of there is uh, gloucester and um a cheltenham example of a, a, a town that i wouldn't pronounce incorrectly we're a bit like Launceston. Yeah. We're back. We're back full circle <laughs> to the start of the conversation. I didn't intend that, neither do you. But uh, uh, I, I saw think the opportunity there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so we're going to have to disagree about the Launceston Launceston debate. I think oh, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think it's Launceston. Oh. I've, I've been telling everyone it's Launceston. Is that how you say it? In isn't there one in the UK? Gloucester. No, but like literally, Gloucester. there's a Launce Launce Launceston in the UK, isn't Is there? there? Oh, might be. Um, Small one. I'd probably pronounce it Launceston, and maybe I'd that's be wrong. That's maybe. There's a toaster. Which is Toaster. Toaster. Yeah, and there's 
uh, Leicester, which is obviously That's my favourite one. I like saying Leicester and it doesn't look anything like no. it. Right. Thanks, Nick. Never mind. Anyway. I think we, we covered a, we, covered a we lot. Yeah. Thank you. No worries. Thank you. Appreciate it.